Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in selected passages of 1 Samuel chapter 25. A man in Mon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name, Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, Long life to you, and peace to you, peace to your family, and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When our shepherds, when your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son, David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they are from. David's young men retraced their steps. And when they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, all of you, put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed, and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us, both day and night, the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, go ahead of me, I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid. And stupidity is all he knows. 
I, your servant, didn't see your Lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in his house, holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk, so she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning, when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died, and he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Hellas Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to the passage that was read so well for us a moment ago. And, and as you're finding your way to 1 Samuel chapter 25, I want to ask if you're familiar with the phrase, uh, a ship of fools. Uh, in his book, The Beginning and End of Wisdom, uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, he explains that this phrase, a ship of fools, was a common medieval motif used in uh, literature and art and especially religious satire pieces. And there was a painting of that same name that is now hanging in the Louvre. And I want to show you a picture of it because this work, A Ship of Fools, is just filled with all sorts of symbolism. This painting would show ten people aboard a small vessel. And you'll notice that two are overboard and they're swimming around the ship. And it's a ship without a captain and everyone there is, is just too busy drinking and feasting and flirting and singing to know where their vessel is taking them. And you get the impression that they are fools because they're all enjoying in this moment without giving any thought to what's happening around them. And if you notice atop the mast, there hangs a bunch of dangling carrots and one of the passengers is climbing up trying to reach these. And, and then above those carrots, 
you'll find positioned a human skull. Now, if you were to count the heads present in the painting, this skull would mark number 13. And the idea is that you have 12 fools who think everything is perfect, and yet they are sailing right to their demise. The only pilot on board, the only figure that is leading the way is death itself. Now, it's a powerful portrait of human folly, of human foolishness, and the perils that it brings, reminding us that a life devoid of wisdom, specifically divine wisdom, always leads to and ends with death. That such a life is a ship without a captain sailing obliviously in a sea storm. Well, in today's passage here in 1 Samuel 25, we meet a character who would have been a passenger on that ship of fools. His name is Nabal, and his name literally translates foolish. It is a synonym for what modern translations refer to as being stupid. And his actions in this passage epitomizes human folly. And the narrator of this story sets Nabal in contrast with his wife named Abigail. And whereas he represents human folly, she would come to serve as a conduit for uh, divine wisdom. And by God's grace, she would come to prevent Israel's future king, the guy named David we've been learning about for several weeks now. He, she would come to prevent David from becoming a passenger on a ship of fools. And you and I are called this morning to consider how we too must be rescued from the perils of human folly. How we too need the conduits of divine wisdom to come to our rescue, delivering us from our own foolish attitudes, our own foolish activities, our own foolish ways. So let's begin by looking at a portrait of human folly, by looking at Nabal, asking the question, what, what made him a fool? What makes him a fool in this story? Well, first, I think you'll notice that Nabal was the type of guy who elevated his secular success above his spiritual formation. That secular success meant more to him than his own spiritual formation and his character development. There's a key way that we are tuned into this when you notice that Nabal's name is not given until after his successes and his accomplishments are described. We're told that there was a man in Maon who owned a business and he was very rich. And towards the end of the story, you find Nabal feasting like a king, just displaying his exorbitant amount of wealth and all that he had access to. And, and his status is given to readers before his name is what's most important to, to Nabal. What was most important to this man was what's most important about him, his secular success, not his spiritual formation. You see, a person's name in Scripture, it represents their character. So that when we read or we are told, you know, we should not take the Lord's name in vain. You understand that that doesn't simply mean that we shouldn't speak certain kinds of words, although that's probably a good idea. When we are told not to take the Lord's name in vain, we are told not to live in a way that is out of line with the character and the nature of God. And so all throughout the scriptures, a person's name is synonymous with their character. It is a representative of their spiritual formation and what you find with Nabal's name what you find with the way that we are introduced to this character is that his spiritual formation was not a priority 
It is always foolish. It is always a sign of human folly for you and I to value who we are becoming far less than what we are achieving or what we are accumulating as we journey through this life. Now, Colin and Lauren McMillan were members of our faith family for almost nine, between nine to ten years. And this past week, God in his providence moved them on to California. And so Colin's not with us today, which means I can talk about him. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about Colin because when Colin originally moved to Seattle, he did so to take a job at Amazon. He came to take a job there. It was a great job and he was very, very good at it. But before transitioning into the city, he took it upon himself to, to figure out where he and his family would plug into as far as their, their church life was concerned. That before ever finding a house, he, he sought a church. He sought a faith family because he knew that his spiritual formation is far more important than his secular success. So his top priority upon moving to Seattle wasn't school districts. It wasn't recreational activities. It wasn't walkability scores of neighborhoods. It wasn't even the commute that he would take to work day in and day out. What mattered most to him and his family was their spiritual formation. That what they sought to settle first was, was how they would grow in their shared relationship with Jesus. And they understood that essential to that growth was connecting to Christ and his community in a tangible, earthy, flesh and blood expression of the family of God. And over the years, the Macmillan family illustrated well what it looks like for Christ and his community, not simply to be a part of their lives, but to be the very point of it. And although Colin wasn't a perfect man and he didn't do everything right, he did often fight by faith to keep his spiritual formation and the spiritual vitality of his family a priority. And as he did that, he would carve out a wise course for his kids to walk in as they would see his priorities on full display. And I want to ask the moms and dads in our midst, if I were to go to your kids and ask them about your priorities, what would they say? How would they list out your priorities? Would they champion your job? Would they champion your recreation? Would they champion your bank account? Would they champion your approach to their sports and their hobbies? What would they say about where those things fall in relation to your spiritual formation? Or if you don't have kids or you don't have a spouse, if we were to look at your calendar and to see how you were spending your time, if we were to look at your checkbook and seeing how you were spending your money, what would they reveal about what matters most to you? What sits atop your priority list as you journey through this life? Is Christ and his community just a spoke in the will of your life? Or is Christ and his community the hub that is holding everything together? The difference between a life shaped by human folly and a life shaped by divine wisdom is whether or not spiritual formation sits at the top of our priorities as moms and dads, as, as men and women, as, as folks journeying through this life. Jesus once asked, for what does it profit, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus knows very well that, you can, that, that fools succeed in this life all the time. 
And Nabal was such an example. He was a fool because he elevated his secular success above his spiritual formation. And in the process, he puts his family's welfare in jeopardy. He jeopardizes their safety when David gets riled up and he's wanting to come take them out. Second, we see Nabal being a fool in the fact that he lived under the illusion of independence. He lived under the illusion of independence. When he was in the wilderness, David and his men uh, took it upon themselves to protect Nabal's shepherds from being harassed and from being raided by bandits and marauders. They protected them without being asked to do so. And they themselves didn't take anything from Nabal, although they had the power and the might to do so. Yet when David, was asked for re- when David asked Nabal for resources and supplies to help them on their journey, Nabal did not acknowledge their support. He did not express any gratitude for the services that they rendered. Instead, what Nabal does is he digs in his heels and listens to his words again. He asked, am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't even know where they are from. Now, just notice all the the string of first-person singular pronouns that are coming out of his mouth. A sure sign of human folly is when you say I and me and my more than you say anything else. And Nabal is certainly painting that picture here as the narrator is emphasizing his folly. For Nabal recognizes neither his dependence upon God nor his interdependence upon other human beings. Nabal is entirely self-centered. He's entirely self-focused. He's living under the illusion of independence. Not unlike what we're told in Psalm 14.1 when the fool says in his heart there is no God. And the word translated fool in that psalm is the word Nabal. It's his very name. Now, Psalm 14.1 isn't simply an indictment of formal atheism, those who do not believe God exists. What's really being targeted with those words is maybe described as practical atheism. And practical atheism is a far bigger threat to our lives than we realize. It's a far bigger reason why we embrace human folly rather than divine wisdom than we care to acknowledge or admit. We may profess faith in God's existence, but we make choices and we embrace perspectives that deny his involvement. And we live our lives on a day-to-day basis as though God doesn't exist, as though God isn't with us, as though God isn't for us. You see, that's the illusion of independence. And it's this illusion of independence that makes us hoard what we have and it alienates generosity and it alienates gratitude from our hearts in moments like these. Do you understand that every talent you have that has attributed to your success in this life, every blessing you enjoy was given to you from above and it has been strengthened and supported by people beside you. The New Testament epistle of James is a, is a letter that calls you and I to pursue wisdom and to walk wisely as we journey through this life and And James 1.6 tells us, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. That is, don't live under the illusion of independence. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You see, the energy that Nabal used to shear his sheep wasn't self-generated. It was energy that was given to him by his creator. And likewise, 
God provides you and I with the energy we use to work hard and to achieve success. None of that is self-generated. None of that is independent or autonomous. All of it is dependent and interdependent. It's been granted to us from above because you and I are creatures. We're not the creator. We are finite. We are not infinite. We are dependent. We are not independent. This is what it means to be created. To be created by God. I agree with Tim Keller who once said that God created the world to be a fabric for everything to be woven together and interdependent. And then he goes on to paint a picture of what this means. Listen to his words. He says, if I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads lying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities. But he didn't make them to be an aggregation. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with one another. But folly rips at the fabric of God's design. Folly, foolishness, makes us selfish. It makes us ungrateful. It makes us, it fills the world with threads just piled on top of each other rather than a fabric woven to display the beauty of God's design in all things. See, independence is an illusion. No one is self-made. We are dependent upon God and we are interdependent upon each other. The wise person recognizes this. The wise person connects those dots and within them forms a generous spirit to help others in need and within them swells a heart of gratitude to thank God for everything and to thank the people around them for the strength and the support that they provide. You see, Nabal was a fool because he lived under the the illusion of independence. But then more could be said. Nabal was a fool because he treated this life as if it was all there is. He lived as though this world was everything. He accumulated wealth and he hoarded it. He spent his nights in drunken revelries. He was a hedonist, singularly focused on the pursuit of earthly pleasures. And we read in the New Testament that that what happens to such folly. We're told in Philippians chapter 3 that the end of such people is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, living as though this life is all there is. But we're told in that same passage about the fate of the wise, the fate of the wise, that who see life beyond this world, that it is our, citizen, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is that future reality that shapes how we live in the here and now. So we don't short-circuit our pursuit of pleasure by wasting it on that which is fleeting. Instead, we seek it now in the eternal pleasure that is available to us in Christ and his kingdom. And so it is the wise among us that realize this life isn't all there is. But then we would go on and see Nabal's folly and how his story ends in this moment. That Nabal's folly is on display when he self-destructs. And he self-destructs at the end of the story under, under divine judgment, which is, which is intense. 
You know, after Abigail deterred David from coming and destroying him, she returned home to find her husband in a drunken stupor. She decides not to engage him then because she wouldn't get anywhere. She waited till the next morning to, to tell him about what, she, about what she did. And Nabal seemed to then have a stroke upon hearing those news. He had a stroke of some sort and we're told that his heart died and it became like a stone. Fell into some sort of coma that lasted about 10 years, and 10 days. And then after 10 days, we're told that the Lord struck Nabal dead. And then David would provide the the insight later that it was the Lord that brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Now, this is an intense moment. It's one that is designed to shake us up. You see, divine judgment ordinarily takes the form of God handing people over to their foolish desires. Divine judgment ordinarily happens in our lives when the Lord hands us over to things that we want that are not good for us, that are considered foolish and Folly, And when we are given these things, if we are not careful, those things will serve to destroy us. They'll be used against us. Think about Nabal's example. His raucous and foolish lifestyle likely deteriorated his health and impacted him in the moment where he had a stroke and he went into this coma and eventually died. And Nabal serves as a striking example that this is where human folly leads and it should shake us up. We should fear being foolish. We should fear not being wise. And we are told often throughout the scriptures that God does judge human folly. He does judge human folly. This is why Proverbs 1 comes to us the way that it does, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. So we recognize that God is judge. We recognize that God is in control. We recognize that God is just in all of his dealings. And when he hands us over to our foolish desires, that is a just act. And so we recognize this, and there's a sense in which we start to fear the Lord. And when we start fearing the Lord, that puts us on the path to receiving wisdom. It puts us on the path for receiving knowledge. Now, you come back to this story. Nabal's folly in this passage, it threatened to draw folly out of David. That after being denied resources and being told of Nabal's personal insult, David got mad. He went into a fit of rage, and he told his his little army there, he said, put on your swords, we're going to get him. And so they start marching towards Nabal to seek vengeance, to kill him for this personal slight and for his lack of generosity. And, but then we're told by God's grace that Abigail intervened, that Abigail stepped up and she stepped in and she serves as a conduit of divine wisdom. She deterred, deterred David from becoming a passenger on the ship of fools. We see her do this in a few ways. One, she exercised discernment. She exercised discernment after a young unnamed man told her about Nabal's folly, told her about Nabal's lack of generosity. And so she discerned. She started to connect the dots. Okay, this is going to put us in danger. Danger must be coming our way. And, and such discernment would drive her to intervene. So she gathered all those supplies. She hopped on a donkey and she went to meet with David. And she did all of this without telling her husband, hoping to defuse a tough and tense situation. You see, divine wisdom, when, 
when it is operating in our lives, it will lead us to exercise discernment. We will become people who listen and pay attention to what's happening around us. We start connecting the dots. We refuse to fall victim to other people's folly. We don't allow folly in others to draw folly out of us. This is one of the things that I think social media is struggling with right now. It's one of the, I think, ways social media is degrading in our society is that you just have folly drawing folly out of everyone. And it becomes messy if we're not if we're not careful, if we're not discerning, if we're not paying attention, if we're not on guard. This is who Abigail is. She is discerning in this moment, and then she takes action that is designed to restrict folly. She wants to deter folly. Notice what she does. She intervenes to keep Nabal from making a fool of David, which he would have become had he taken vengeance. Because had David taken vengeance, he would have become a practical atheist. He would have said in his heart that there is no God because he would have taken control of that situation, not believing that God is just, not believing that God is judge, thinking that it is up to him to set everything wrong in the world right. And so she intervenes to prevent David from becoming a fool, which is exactly what he would have been had he taken vengeance in that moment. But notice at the start of verse 24, as she, when she shows up to engage David, she says, the guilt is mine, my Lord. And then in verse 28, she says, please forgive your servant's offense. Now, without excusing her husband's acts, she accepted blame for David's mistreatment. She does this as a member of her clan. She does this as one who is part of a much bigger fabric, so to speak. She's confessing despite the fact that she wasn't personally culpable for what Nabal did to David. Now, this is a very hard concept for American Christians like us to grasp. We are hyper-individualistic, and we do not readily recognize our interdependence. And so practices like the corporate or communal confession of sin, those practices are sometimes dismissed or they are sometimes devalued. But as you've noticed in the worship rhythms of our church over the past few months, we've begun incorporating regular moments where we together are praying prayers of confession. We are praying prayers of lament. And we do this because when we gather together, we gather as a singular body of Christ. And when God looks at us in this moment, he doesn't see us as a collection of threads piled on top of each other. He sees us as part of the fabric of Christ and his kingdom, that we are woven together in Christ, and he relates to us as such. And so you want to take a New Testament metaphor. You get into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're told that Paul uses the metaphor of a single batch of dough, and, and we're told, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? What he's saying with that simple yet powerful analogy is that sin in part of the body impacts the whole. Folly in some, if it goes unchecked, if it isn't restricted through confession and addressing it, it can grow and create a lot of, do a lot of damage. So when we confess our sin together or we lament together, Part of what we are doing is we are restricting folly among us. 
And there are many churches right now who have heaped disgrace on the name of Christ because they have allowed folly to go unchecked and unrestricted in their community. So you might engage in a prayer of confession with everyone in this room and you might not feel personally culpable for what you're saying, but that doesn't mean you're not a part of a much bigger fabric and when there's sin in part, when there's folly in part, that will have an adverse effect on the whole. A little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. And so you see Abigail here owning up to something that she wasn't responsible for confessing something to restrict folly. But not only does she confess, she provides counsel. She wants David to preserve his innocence en route to the throne. She doesn't want him to become king with blood on his hands. That's how kings and kingdoms in the surrounding nations are formed. That's how rulers achieve power in other places. It should not be the case for the Lord's anointed. So she provides counsel that's designed to keep David from becoming a fool en route to the king, the kingdom. And when you think about what's being presented here, you can't help but turn your attention and think about Jesus for a moment and be reminded that Jesus established his kingdom and Jesus inaugurated his kingdom in this world not because he shed anyone's blood. He did it because he shed his own. That's what the Lord's anointed does. That is counterintuitive wisdom. That's the wisdom of the cross that we will see here in a moment. Now, in the process of restricting folly through confession and counsel, Abigail encouraged faith because that's what wisdom does. Wisdom draws attention to the presence, to the providence, to the promises of the Lord. She reminds David that God has been at work in his life the whole time. She credits the Lord with preventing David from participating in bloodshed and avenging himself. She is this conduit of divine wisdom designed and intended by God to protect him from folly. And she assures David that the Lord's gonna handle Nabal, that the Lord's got Nabal. He's not gonna allow Nabal to go unchecked or unjudged in this life. And and she reminds David that he will be king. And all of this counsel serves to sober David up It enables him to think clearly once again. You know, folly, foolishness is a form of drunken-mindedness. And yet Abigail, this conduit of divine wisdom, drains all of that out of David so that he can think clearly, be sober-minded once again. In other words, she made peace. She made peace in that moment by intervening. David recognizes this, so he responds with a word of blessing. David would say to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. He blesses this peacemaker who had come towards him. Now you keep reading through the story and after Nabal died, David would take Abigail to be his wife and in an era when widows were highly vulnerable, And the marital dynamics were quite complicated as it describes men with multiple wives, even men who knew the Lord and trusted the Lord like David. There's a lot of complexity to it. But what I really want you to think about in this moment is that David takes responsibility for this widow. He brings her into his family. He marries her, taking her into his household, granting her all the rights and the privileges that belong to royalty. It's a beautiful moment when David brings her in. 
And you begin to see a little something about what Jesus is getting after when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who make peace. You see, peacemakers belong to the royal family of God. Peacemakers are the sons and the daughters of God. They are a part of God's household and are awarded all of the rights and the privileges that are found therein. And as followers of Christ who are journeying through a complicated, foolish world, we make peace. We don't make trouble. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers are conduits of divine wisdom. Conduits of divine wisdom who exercise discernment, who restrict folly, who encourage peace, who encourage faith and make peace. So let me ask you, is your life marked more by human folly or divine wisdom? Is your life marked more by human folly or divine wisdom? What is your priority as you are journeying through this life? Is it secular success? Is it spiritual formation? Are you recognizing that life in this world isn't all there is? Are you living in light of the fear of the Lord, knowing that that's where knowledge, that's where wisdom begins? If you begin to ask yourself this question, wondering and find yourself being marked more by human folly than divine wisdom, let me encourage you with James chapter one, verse five. Well, we are given this promise that if anyone lacks wisdom, he or she should ask God who gives generously and ungrudgingly, and he will give wisdom to those who ask for it. You see, God's generous and gracious gift of wisdom comes freely to us, and the reason it comes freely to us is because it flows from the cross. That divine wisdom was purchased for us through the wisdom of the cross, through the death of the Son of God that appears to all onlookers as an act of foolishness, as an act of folly, yet we are told time and time again that the death of the Son of God was the wisest event that's ever occurred in the history of humanity. That the cross is the keynote conduit for divine wisdom. It is how wisdom comes into our lives because it is through the cross where you and I are reconciled to God, set in right relationship with the Lord. This is why Paul would say, for since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, saying human reason can't reconcile sinners and sufferers like us to a holy God. So he goes on, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Wisdom is available to us. All we have to do is ask. Are we humble enough to ask? Are we humble enough to say, Lord, I am a fool without you. Lord, I make foolish choices without your grace and your generosity being operative in my life. And so we ask the Lord to give us wisdom. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, would you rescue us from from human folly? 
and would you supply our lives with the divine wisdom? Give us grace to see in Abigail an example to follow as she points us to the cross of Christ. God, we thank you for the peace that we have with you. We thank you for the fact that we belong to your family. And would you help us to live in light of that incredible reality right now? Would you weave us together and form within the Hallows Church a beautiful fabric displaying your beautiful design in all things for all the world to see. God, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name.